Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Professor John Fox, a leading scholar in artificial intelligence and cognitive science research. Professor Fox has been working in the field of medical information technology for nearly 40 years. In 2007, he moved to Oxford University to set up the COSAC, Cognitive Science and Systems Engineering Program with Edinburgh University and a clinical informatics incubator at the Royal Free Hospital in London. Welcome to the show, John. Delight to have you speaking with me this evening. Maybe we could start with a question we ask most of our guests, which is how did you get involved in healthcare? It goes back a long way, um, but I originally trained as a, a cognitive scientist um, in England. And um, although my original research was in um, uh, vision and imaging, I then spent some time, was very lucky to spend some time in an artificial intelligence centre in the US for a couple of years. And when I came back to England, I wanted to combine my interests in computing and psychology and um, and do apply application things uh, in medicine. So I started working for the British Medical Research Council and started a project on medical decision making, interested as much in, in human thinking, medical thinking, the nature of expertise as I was in computers and AI, but somehow or other they came together and, and I then spent most of my career combining my interests in um, understanding thinking and decision-making with designing practical AI systems for the clinic. So was it purely an intellectual exercise or was there some experience that you had that made you think you'd, you could, you'd want to apply yourself in this area? No, there was, there was no personal experience. Both my parents were in the medical world. My father was a, a radiographer and an ambulance driver during the war, and my mother was a, was a nurse, but that's as close as I got to medicine. But somehow it, it, it went into me, and, and I was interested in, in the problems of medicine and the challenges that we feel more and more as the years go by. So in your view as a cognitive scientist and you know an AI expert, what healthcare issues do you think are most likely to be problematic in the years ahead? Well, I think the, some of the problems have been clear for 30 or 40 years that medicine, as one of my colleagues once said, is a humanly impossible task. There's too much to do, too much to know, too little time, and inevitably, Mistakes get made, things go wrong, people don't get the best care that they could and should get. So the question is, can we use technology to help reduce medical error, to improve quality and safety of, of patient care? And, um, and that was the, the original kind of applied question, practical question that concerned me. And the intellectual question, if you want to call it that, was trying to understand why people make mistakes and how we can mitigate them. Okay, so can you give an example of a project that took all of that on board in your work? Yes, I've been working on a project for many years called Credo, which has really been trying to design computer software, AI software, 
which can carry out a wide range of medical tasks that people take for granted. We make mistakes, but we're still pretty good at them, whether it's decision-making or reasoning or planning or explaining a clinician, explaining to a patient what they're advising and what their treatment's going to be. Enormous range of skills and practical things that uh, that human beings know how to do, and, and doctors in particular. And um, we've been really trying to say, can we develop a technology that can do that? And over the years, we've worked in lots of different areas. I suppose working for Cancer Research UK, which I did for, for, for many years, um, we focused on cancer, um, partic- also interested in primary care and in other specialties. But breast cancer really has been our, our test bed. And we've been able to develop a tool that's capable of supporting everything from risk assessment to diagnosis to triage for helping GPs decide whether somebody needs to be urgently referred to an oncologist to genetic genetic risk assessment, care planning, um, oncology treatment planning, and so on. Enormous range. We made a little video once of the breast cancer patient journey and and found there were 65 different points in the journey where decisions might be made, which if they went wrong, had potential for patient harm. And it's been our ambition to build an AI technology that could help reduce the risk of errors in all 65 of those different kinds of decisions. And I think we've got a long way towards that. Okay. So I'm interested in this idea about helping the GP make uh, a decision whether to refer somebody to an Mm. oncologist. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. are you talking specifically about breast cancer or other cancers? No, we built a little system called ERA, um, which was early referrals uh, application. And um, and that, I think we had about 16 different of the most common cancers. Mm. We started in that case from a a published guideline. The, The UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence publishes a huge range of, of clinical guidelines, as I'm sure you know, Moyes. Yes. And um, many of these are uh, just things for doctors to read. And we turned the, the medical logic that's described in those referral guidelines when patient needs to be seen urgently into quite a simple AI system that would record information about the patient and then make a recommendation whether they satisfied the criteria for a two-week referral. And was that tested in practice? There was a test in the National Health Service, about a six-month test. And then it was, um, our application was then rebuilt by one of the big GP companies in the UK called EMIS. And I think it's probably still running in some form or other. I'm not sure. Because it's an interesting problem, isn't it? Because it's not just the information that's in front of you, which you can record, but information Mm -hmm. that we still don't really have about the potential for malignancy, um, factors that still haven't been put into those equations. Because I think the NICE Mm -hmm. guidelines tend to be quite straightforward. You get, you know, three or four variables, and then it tells you whether you've got a high-risk patient or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you think that we are at the point where we can deploy this technology or do you think we've got a way to go before more of this information becomes available and we are 
much better targeting patients? No, I'm I'm very confident, and quite a few applications that we and others have built using Credo have been deployed. In fact, one of the uh, the most impressive is from New Zealand, from your part of the of the globe, um, where there is a, a set of applications for GPs. I think it's they're deployed to ninety five percent of GPs in in New Zealand, which. Again, this has helped the GP to follow guidelines in a wide range of different applications. That the and that that's not just in cancer; that's in, in a huge range of, of things. And um, we, there's also for the patient one of the early symptom checkers. They're called triage systems that was running on the NHS website uh, was built using our application, and that was. Um, and still is, I think, a version of it is, is running in, in, in Scotland. A lot of the systems we build are quite experimental. So some of them don't, we don't carry on supporting. We just build a system, run a trial, publish the data, and then hope somebody picks it up and translates it into, into a, a different uh, way of delivering it as a different product. But uh, in general, I, w- I would say we're pretty confident that for a vast range of applications, decision-making applications in primary care and specialist medicine, we can significantly improve, measurably and quantitatively improve quality of decision-making. And certainly we've seen examples of that, but there are also examples where the computer tends to be a an interloper in the consultation. They talk about it as the third person in that meeting between the doctor and the patient. Mm. How do you think Mm. that we can introduce this technology into that setting without it becoming a barrier to communication between those two people? Mm. Yes, I think in primary care, that's particularly difficult where the nature of the interaction between the, the doctor and his or her patient is very informal, needs to be really quite unstructured and, and the GP needs to give the patient a lot of freedom to express and explain themselves in their own terms. Quite a few of the applications that we've worked on, because it's cancer, have been relatively s- structured uh, situations, and maybe not even with the patient being present. So one of our flagship projects published in BMJ Open a few years ago was supporting the multidisciplinary meeting with the breast cancer team at the Royal Free Hospital in London. And there, there was a system that was could support a wide range of, of decisions from surgery to radiotherapy to chemotherapy, hormone therapy, and so on. And there, the system was fairly unintrusive. It provided a, a quick reference to what we needed, the clinicians needed to know and discuss about each patient, and and could link the information that was available to get to the pros and cons that were relevant. For particular treatments or, or or tests, investigations, and even drill down into the evidence, the trials that justified any recommendation the computer was making. And that was running for about three years um, very successfully and seemed to find a very um, unobtrusive role in the multidisciplinary meeting. So from your perspective as, as an AI expert, what is the most exciting thing on the horizon that you think could make a difference to outcomes in healthcare? What I'm most proud of in our work is the range, the versatility of the the Credo method. And but in some ways our interests have moved away from technology. We think to a large extent 
technology is no longer the problem. Some of the problems are the sort of soft issues of, as you were mentioning, how do you deploy technology in a, a setting which is very sensitive and people's uh, personal situation needs to be dealt handled very diplomatically and, and, and with great care. Though our particular project at the moment is perhaps what excites me most, it's called Open Clinical. And what we're trying to do is to demonstrate a new way of, of, of modelling clinical practice in a form that is the knowledge, if you like, that, um, that, that people have, can be captured in a form that computers can use. And what we really want to do is to give clinicians themselves the tools to, to take ownership of AI, to create applications on open clinical and share them and improve them themselves. What I've seen over the many years is many technical failures, which I'm, I'm sure your listeners will be aware of, because projects are driven by technologists and without a, a deep understanding of the traditions and nature of clinical practice. And so what we're trying to do is to crowdsource the applications that clinicians want and need from them, the professionals, that they should own the AI. It should not be driven by technologists and not by primarily by commercial companies. Of course, business has its role, but it's, it's, it's not, mustn't be dominant. When we think about computers, we think about, you know, your laptop computers, your desktop computers, but technology is now beginning to move in a different direction, isn't it? With it being much more portable, you've got things in your pocket that have more technology than NASA had when they landed man on the moon. Um, mm -hmm. you, you've got eyeglasses that are able to transmit information and, and relay information to the brain, etc. Where do you think this will take us in the next 20 years? I think if you ask people with different technical interests, they'll give you different answers. For me, going back to my training as a, as a psychologist and as a designer, I think we're going to see more and more technology, not only on smartphones, but the kind of speech-based and natural language-based interaction that more and more of us are becoming familiar with and, and beginning to use routinely on our on our phones and laptops. The, we have the computer there. It won't be keyboards and mice and touchscreens and so on. They'll be just almost, to use your phrase you heard earlier, a third party in the clinical setting, listening to what is being said, interpreting it, making suggestions, answering questions when asked, explaining why a particular intervention or treatment is the most preferred, suggesting things that might be done to deal with risks or uncertainties in a patient's care. And it'll almost, and I'm not saying there will be a robot there, in some cases there will be robots, but there more and more these systems will be unobtrusive, hardly visible uh, in, in the clinical setting. Treat, we can treat them almost like another person. The issue, I guess, will be the issue of privacy, won't it? In, in the sense that wherever you go, they will, you will be observed and information will be gathered. And how that information is then handled will need particular care. Oh, that's a huge and continuing issue. There was an analogous issue, if I can be a little bit 
trivial for a moment. When we used to have purely paper records, uh, information about patients, which were often very insecure. They sat in, in records rooms. They would be carried around, left on desks. But at that time, you, you might lose a patient's record, but you'd lose one or two. Then when things went electronic, then suddenly, of course, you had the potential not only to lose, make it, have access to patients of hundreds of thousands of patients and what treatments they were on, what conditions they were suffering from and so on. I mean, that problem of security and, and privacy has been one that I think that, that's, that's been now with us for two, maybe even three decades. Technically, lots of lots of problems like that can be solved. Again, I think the difficulty is is going to be the plugging the technology into the human organisation, the human traditions, and making sure that the the stakeholders, particularly the healthcare professionals, are the ones who are, de- who are determining how these systems are designed, and it's not just left to engineers and computer scientists like exactly. me. And beyond that, I guess it's where that information goes once it has been recorded in that doctor's office. Because, of course, mm. the great concern, and particularly in the US, as you'll be aware from from the conversation I had with Deborah Peel, that information is gathered centrally somewhere and can potentially be used to undermine that person's um, quality of life or or, their, or the choices that are available to them. Mm-hmm. There's there's huge opportunity for human disasters and abuse. I have to say, that's not my specialty. It's not my area of expertise. It's a huge problem that's going to face the next generation of um, clean, you know, healthcare professionals and technologists that are coming up now. So what would you like to see happen sooner rather than later from your perspective? And that's a purely a technical question. I think what I would like to see, and it's happening, is that the general public is becoming becomes more critical about artificial intelligence. This, the debates that go on oscillate between the danger of simple things like black boxes to the possibility that AI and computer systems are going to take over the world. And in fact, the range of services and tools that can be created is just so huge and so enormous that people that people need to that this to, this conversation needs to become much more nuanced and much more uh, diverse um and i think that's the challenge for technologists like me to make these systems transparent make them open to examination so that all the stakeholders, whether they're professionals or patients, can understand, criticise, and in the end own the technology. There was a very famous book you may know called Limits to Medicine, written by a sociologist, I think he was, medical sociologist, called Ivan Illich. And he was very critical not only in medicine, but of large institutions and how they tend to run for their own benefit. 
But for whatever reason, his only answer, he, he was criti critical of medicine because m medical systems and services he, he saw as being becoming running for their benefits of the providers, not for the benefit of the patients. And his only answer seemed to me was to be political. And he, I think he had a phrase like, we have to reclaim our autonomy as patients. I felt from those from my early early years in, in the field, that technology could actually empower us in, in very important ways. And I think that's really what I consider the, the, the end of my career. That's what I'm focused on, is to make sure this technology is enabling and empowering rather than becoming something that, that is threatening to people. That's a wonderful, thoughtful answer. Thank you, John. And thank you very much for speaking with me this evening. I'm delighted. Thank you very much for the call. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com.